What's up, people? This episode is sponsored by Lucia Rivers Harry, nutritionist, chemical engineer, and director of Nutrition is Medicine, a nutrition online business specializing in microbiome and nutrigenomic testing, consulting, nutrition plans, and the NIM Learning Hub membership. Lasia believes gut health and the interaction of key genes is fundamental to the root cause of health issues and resolving those issues. Lucia is offering all Primodcast subscribers and listeners 10% off all microbiome and gene testing packages. Get on it, people. Simply add Primod at checkout and the discount will apply. I'll attach a link in the description of this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Podcasting. Podcasting from Sydney, Australia. This is the Primodcast. Independent, unfiltered, and uncensored. Beginning in three, two, one. Professor Matthias Desnet, thank you very much for joining me. How are you? You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, before we get into it, um, if you can just uh, give my audience a rundown, uh, exactly what you do and a bit of your background. Yes, well, I'm a professor in clinical psychology at Ghent University. Um, I used to lec- I, I, I lecture on uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, um, uh, also uh, on mass psychology, uh, and I also uh, got a master in statistics. I'm a, a psychotherapy researcher. I do a lot of academic research, and um, I made my PhD about um, the validity of academic research and um, I started this PhD in 2003 and two years later the so-called replication crisis started in in the academic world showing that in some academic domains such as the medical sciences up to 85% of the papers uh, proved to be wrong. Um, John Ioannidis wrote this wonderful paper about this phenomenon titled why most published research findings are false. So I also studied this, this replication crisis uh, in the field of psychology. And um, I, it made me take a very cr- skeptical and critical stance towards academic research. And I published a book about that, uh, The Pursuit of Objectivity in Psychology, in which I explain why most research methods, in my opinion, never can lead to reliable and valid results. And to my surprise, I noticed that most of my colleagues got angry at, angry at me. I, I explained everything in a very tangible and concrete way, but most people didn't want to see it. And that's where I got interested in mass psychology, because I believe that only mass psychology or well, you could say group dynamics can explain why people can become so completely radically blind for things that are utterly absurd and blatantly wrong. And when the Corona crisis started, I immediately had the same feeling. I had a feeling like there's a research that is summoned to uh, explain why we have to take the measures we take, why we have to uh, go through lockdowns and why we have to wear masks and so on. There's a research on which all these measures are based uh, is very flawed and it dramatically overrates the dangerousness of the virus. So that from the first week onwards, I published this paper here in an opinion paper in a, a Belgian journal uh, titled The fear of the virus is more dangerous than the virus itself. And I, in, in the beginning, I started to study the statistics and the mathematical models that were used. Uh, in the mainstream media. And after like two or three months, in my opinion, it was proven beyond doubt that all these initial mathematical models and, stat- and statistics had been completely wrong, uh, that, the fear, that the virus was far less dangerous than initially uh, estimated. And still, I noticed that the narrative and the measures continued as if the narrative had been right and as if the models on which the narrative was based, mathematical models, had been right. And um, that was the moment when I, so for instance, we all know that the initial models of Imperial College predicted that in a small country such as Sweden, about, I believe, 60 to 80,000 people would die if the country didn't go into lockdown. 
so they, they, these models predicted that by the end of May, 60 to 80,000 people would die. And by the end of May, uh, only 6,000 people died in Sweden. And these 6,000, that figure of 6,000 um, resulted even from a very, very enthusiastic counting. If the, if the number of victims claimed by the virus would have been counted in a normal way, it would probably have been even much less than 6,000. And at that moment, I realized that no matter how, how, how elaborately or how, how long I, I, I would explain that the mathematical models were wrong and that the statistics were wrong, uh, most people just wouldn't believe it. And at that moment, I, I decided to focus on, on uh, the question, what psychological processes could explain uh, that people became so blind and that people were willing to buy into a narrative that would lead them into utter self-destruction. Um, and that's when I started to think about uh, the hypothesis that what was going on in society was a large-scale worldwide phenomenon of mass formation, mass formation, something that I was familiar with from my uh, lecturing activities at Kent University, uh, and which is actually a phenomenon. So the phenomenon of mass formation has been studied from the 19th century onwards. Onwards, and it refers to this specific group dynamic, a specific group formation that can happen on a small scale or on a large scale in many different ways, uh, but which always has a very specific effect at the level of individual psychological functioning. Namely, when an individual is in the grip of a mass formation, it typically becomes radically blind for everything that goes against what the group believes in. And um, this can go quite far. Like people who are in the grip of a mass formation really can believe the most absurd statements. Uh, for, for instance, in, in, in Iran, uh, during the revolution of uh, 1978, 1979 in Iran, people were also in the grip of a mass formation as the revolution was a kind of a mass formation and they considered the Ayatollah Khomeini to be their, their leader. And they believed that the portrait of the, of the Ayatollah was printed on the surface of the moon. And when there was a full moon at the sky, they were people were typically standing in the streets, pointing at the moon, showing each other where exactly you could see the portrait of the Ayatollah on the surface of the moon. So that's one example of the absurd beliefs that uh, people can stick to when they are in the grip of a mass formation. The second typical characteristic of an individual in the grip of mass formation is that it becomes willing to sacrifice everything that used to be important before the mass formation started. So it wants to sacrifice its wealth, its health, its uh, uh, the future of its children, uh, the people who, that it loves, and so on. So that they're all typical. This is, mass formation leads to this typical effect that people become radically willing to self-sacrifice and to sacrifice everything that used to be important for them. And then a third very important characteristic that when people are in the mass formation, uh, they start to become radically intolerant for dissonant voices, for, for, for everyone who speaks up and who says something that goes against what the group believes in. And this intolerance, uh, in the end, can evolve uh, in the direction of, of cruelties. People in a mass uh, ultimately, typically start to commit cruelties to everyone who doesn't belong to the mass, who refuses to Go, who defies the masses, who refuses to go along with the masses. And that's the end stage. Uh, there's a, and, and it's typically, this, this, this can take extreme forms. Like to refer to the revolution in Iran again, uh, a few months ago, I had this podcast with a lady of Iran who lived in Iran during the revolution. And she told me how she had seen with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the state because she believed he was not loyal enough to the Ayatollah and how she hung the rope around the neck of her son when he was on the scaffold. And when he was hung, she claimed to be a heroine for doing what she did. So that's the typical end stage. The people start to commit cruelties towards the people who do not go along with the masses or who they suspect to not go along with the masses. And they do so, very typical as if it is an ethical duty to do so, even when it concerns the people whom, were, uh, whom they used very much 
whom they loved very much before the mass formation started. So that's a typical, that are the typical characteristics of a mass formation. And I believe really that that is what happened during the Corona crisis. It didn't uh, go until the last stage, uh, but it can go on because it, it didn't stop now. It, 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 the, the power of the mass formation decreased a little bit now, but it didn't stop and it can restart again. And I believe that it's just quintessential, it's of crucial importance that we understand the mechanism of this psychological phenomenon, that we understand historically why it emerges now. Uh, and if we make the correct analysis about this phenomenon, we will be able to survive in the years to come, as a group who uh, refuses to conform, who refuses to buy into the narrative, and if we make the, the wrong analysis, we might be destroyed by the masses. If you make, if you make a, a profound, good psychological analysis, you understand what you should do and what you shouldn't. And that's what I try to do. I try to present this analysis of the phenomenon of mass emission. I try to understand what exactly happens and what the right decision is, what the right choices, the right choices are if you're confronted with this phenomenon. You explained that very, very well. It's something that I think well, look, to, to, I, I heard the first time I heard about mass formation was probably like a lot of people have told you this is on the Joe Rogan podcast with Dr. Malone, um, where he explained that. And I, I had to know more about that because I'm seeing that happen. And it's not just with, with coronavirus, it's happening with a lot of things. I mean, you've got, you've got people that are walking around, um, and I've seen even in parliament, um, people can't answer a question as basic as what's a woman? I'm sure you may have seen videos going around where there being, people are asking what's a woman and then people can't answer it um, or they're denying something that you know is a fact. Like, and you start thinking, like, why, why are we playing this game? Why, why like, you're clearly pretending because you know that's not accurate. Um, so it's not just with, with coronavirus. Um, it's with a lot of things. But do those people that are, experiencing mass formation do they realize that they're wrong but they continue or they just uh, don't see that you know that's one of the important things someone who is in the grip of a mass formation um someone who buys into the narrative that leads to the mass formation doesn't buy into the narrative because he believed that narrative is accurate or, or right or something. No, he buys into the narrative for completely different reasons that are much more situated at the interpersonal and the affective emotional level. And as soon as uh, someone joins the masses, uh, is in the grip of the masses, it just doesn't matter anymore whether the narrative that leads to the mass formation is right or wrong. The narrative can become so absurd as it wants people will continue to buy into it. But the, the, the number of people who are really into the mass formation is not extremely high. It's, it's usually it's about 20 to 30% of the population, but there isn't a silent majority, like maybe about 60, 65% who just goes along with the masses because they, for one reason or another, always prefer to take the easy way and, 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 and not the difficult way uh, in which uh, they would have to speak out uh, and step up and, and, and tell the masses that uh, what they believe in is absurd and, and that uh, it is destructive and so on. So as soon as you understand that, you understand a lot. You have to, it's, it's extremely important to understand what leads to the mass formation. So I, I've explained that, of course, in my book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, which has been published, I don't know, about two months ago now, I think. Um, I explain what psychological conditions in a society make a society vulnerable for mass formation. And if you understand these conditions, then you also understand that uh, uh, mass formation is not about accurate or not accurate. It's, about, it's um, in the first place an effective emotional interpersonal process. 
Um, you know, what, what do you think? Shall we go into this phenomenon, into this mechanism of mass formation or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important it? to, yeah, it definitely. It's important, I think, for people to understand, you know, the mechanisms for it. So I guess we can see it unfolding because uh, because look my very basic understanding is that you need a few things fear being one fear is extremely powerful so I, i'd imagine that's probably a part of that at the early stages so yeah feel free to to dive deeper that's no problem yeah you need a specific kind of fear you need a specific kind of fear um indeed um so but the first and most crucial condition is always that many people have to feel uh, lonely have to feel disconnected from their environment. And for instance, in in um, the UK, this was, that was definitely the case just before the Corona crisis started. Theresa May even appointed the minister of loneliness because there were so because she recognized that there were so many people feeling lonely. And that's something very strange. Throughout the last 200 years, the percentage of people that feels feeling lonely is constantly increasing in the world. And um, it's apparently that's a consequence of uh, the industrialization and the mechanization of the world and the use of technology. The more industrialization, the more technology use, the higher the percentage of people feeling lonely. And that, that's, that's why throughout the last 200 years, the number of people feeling lonely constantly increased. And also the mass formation, which is based on loneliness, also increased, became stronger and stronger and stronger until the masses became so strong that with the help of, a, of an elite, uh, they could seize control of the state system. And that's when a totalitarian state emerges, which happened for the first time in history in the beginning of the 20th century in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. So there is a there's an intrinsic association between uh, mass formation and totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is always based on mass formation. So, but what happens is this. So, once people, once a lot of people feel lonely and disconnected from their natural and social environment, they will also start to feel, um, they will also start to struggle with experiences of lack of meaning making. That's very typical. When someone feels lonely and disconnected, without knowing it, he will start to feel that his life is meaningless, that his life has no purpose. And also that was clear, like if you look at the number of people who consider their own job to be a so-called bullshit job, who consider their own job to be a a job that was completely purposeless. Um, that was about, I think it was about 60% just before the Corona crisis. But 60% of the people worldwide reported that they uh, uh, considered their own job to be completely meaningless. So, the, so, that, that, so that the first condition is always the loneliness. Then we have the uh, experiences of lack of meaning making. And then from the first two conditions follow, follows the third and the fourth one, which are very important. Once people feel disconnected and struggle with experiences of meaning making, they will typically be confronted with something very specific at the emotional and affective level. They will be confronted with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means a kind of anxiety, fear. Anxiety is technically more correct. A kind of anxiety, frustration, and aggression uh, that is not associated to a mental representation. That means that people feel anxious um aggressive frustrated without knowing what they feel anxious aggressive and frustrated for and that's that's an extremely aversive mental state because when, when you feel anxious for instance and you don't know what you feel anxious for you, um, you you typically feel completely out of control you cannot protect yourself from anxiety if you don't know what you feel anxious for and the same vein if you feel frustrated and aggressive but you don't know what you feel frustrated and aggressive for you can't take your frustration and aggression out on something and it piles up in yourself leading to a kind of very aversive internal tension and if if under these conditions um, a narrative is distributed disseminated in the mass media providing an object of anxiety and the strategy to deal with that object of anxiety then there is always a good chance that all this freely floating anxiety uh, will will couple to will attach itself to this object of anxiety in the narrative and that people will be willing to participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, no matter how absurd the strategy is. Exactly the same happens at the individual level. When someone is confronted with 
free-floating anxiety, and uh, suddenly this person might develop a, a phobia. He might become anxious of spiders or snakes. And while rationally, rationally, he might know that the spiders and the snakes are not dangerous or that they even don't exist in the country where he lives, he will continue to attach his anxiety to the spider and the snake and he will behave as if his anxiety is real, meaning that he will participate in avoidance, avoidance behavior, that he will participate in, in certain ritualistic behavior to protect himself from the spider or the, or the snake that maybe even not exists. And the same happens when the mass formation starts at the collective level. Collectively, people all start, all start to feel afraid of the same object of anxiety, sometimes real, sometimes imagined, doesn't matter. And they start to be willing to participate in the strategies to deal with that object of anxiety, even if these strategies are utterly absurd or even self-destructive. And this that's the first step of the mass formation, which yields a certain psychological advantage, namely that people now have the illusion that they can control their anxiety. They are living under the illusion that they can control it. They believe they know what the cause of their anxiety is, and they believe uh, they have a strategy to control their object of anxiety. And then, as this is a collective phenomenon, a very important second step follows. Namely, that um, because people all participate in the same strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, they have the feeling that they are not lonely anymore. They have the feeling that a new social bond emerged. And that's crucial. Mm. The social bond is the real reason why people participate in the strategy. People are inherently social beings. And if they feel lonely and disconnected, they will do everything in one reason or another, if it's possible to be reconnected. But, and now it comes, the social bond that emerges in a mass, in a mass formation is never a social bond between individuals. It's a social bond between the individual and the collective. Meaning that this famous solidarity, which is so typical for mass formations, which existed in the Crusades, in the witch hunts, in the French Revolution, in the large-scale mass formations of the Soviet Union in Nazi Germany, this famous solidarity and citizenship, which is so typical for mass formation, is never a solidarity of one individual to another individual. It's a solidarity of every individual separately to the collective ideal. And it's even the case that as the mass formation lasts longer, all the solidarity between individuals is sucked away psychologically and invested in the solidarity between individual and the collective. Meaning that in the end, individuals feel far more love and uh, loyalty towards the collective than towards other individuals. And this example of this mother who uh, reported her son to the state and hung the rope around his neck on the scaffold is a typical example showing that in the end, even the strongest psychological bonds between individuals, the bond between the mother and her son, deteriorate and uh, disappear if the mass formation lasts long enough. So the reason why people participate in the narrative is never because they believe that the, that the narrative is right. It's because it leads to this new fake, illusionary, new social bond. And um, that's why the narrative can be as stupid or absurd as it wants. People will continue to buy into it. And that's also why very often people seem to think that if the narrative becomes even more absurd, that the people in the masses will wake up. That's simply not true. Simply not true. Like all these measures, these corona measures, to a large extent, fulfill the function of a ritual. A ritual in which people participate to show that the collective interests are more important than the individual interests. That's the function of most rituals. Rituals, ritualistic behavior is a kind of behavior that 
through which an individual shows that belonging to a group is more important than its own individual interests. That's why every ritualistic behavior demands a sacrifice of a subject and in a pragmatic sense is always meaningless. So um, that's the phenomenon of mass emergence emerges in this way. And uh, it, um, it, uh, it has an incredible strength. It's the same as a mass hypnosis. It's identical to, to hypnosis. In hypnosis, all the attention of someone is sucked away from the environment by a hypnotist. The hypnotist focuses all the attention on one point. And as soon as this happened, uh, the person is not aware anymore of the rest of reality. And the hypnotist can easily take everything away of the person uh, that used to be very important for that person before the hypnosis started. Uh, and, and also, the, the, for instance, to, 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 to illustrate the enormous strength of the mechanism of focusing of attention that, as it happens in mass formation and hypnosis, you can think of these uh, uh, situations in which uh, surgeons perform a surgical operation under hypnosis. A really a simple hypnotic procedure is sufficient to focus a patient's attention so much on one aspect of reality that he doesn't notice anymore that the surgeon cuts through the skin, the flesh, even straight through the breastbone to perform an open heart operation. That shows how incredibly strong um, uh, this focusing attention is. And that, but then as soon as you understand that how it works, this mechanism of affirmation, that it is an example, that it is a kind of hypnosis, then you also understand that it is always induced by the voice. Hypnosis is, 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 is a phenomenon in which someone is in the grip of the voice of someone. And that's the same with mass formation. In a mass formation, people start to get in the grip of a narrative that is re-articulated and re-articulated time and time through the mass media. And um, uh, as soon as you understand that, you also start to understand what you can do against that phenomenon of mass formation. You have to speak out. You have to speak out. Because and if people are in the grip of one voice, they will get this, this hypnosis will be disturbed by by dissonant voices. Mm. So, you know, totalitarian leaders, the totalitarian state is always based on mass formation. And mass formation is a kind of hypnosis. And that's why totalitarian leaders know and feel, sometimes intuitively, sometimes consciously, and feel that they have to present their voice to the population. That's why they use so much indoctrination and propaganda. Classical dictators are completely different in this respect. Classical dictators use terror because a classical dictatorship is not based on mass formation. It's based on just a fear for the aggression of the dictatorial regime. And the totalitarian leaders, totalitarianism is based on mass formation, which is induced by the voice by indoctrination propaganda. And you can clearly see, history clearly shows that it is exactly at the moment that the dissonant voices stop to speak out in public space, that the mass formation becomes complete and that it goes to this ultimate stage in which the totalitarian system starts to commit cruelties and atrocities towards those who do not go along with it. That happened in 1930 in the Soviet Union, in 1935 in Nazi Germany. So it, the, the, the opposition uh, chose to uh, remain silent at that moment. And within a period of six months, the cruelty started. And then that's why, as soon as you understand that, you understand that you have to continue to speak out if you don't agree with the masses. Gustave Le Bon, uh, the most famous mass psychologist of the 19th century, reported already that if a large-scale mass forms in a society, there is always a group that doesn't join the masses, that resists the masses, that defies the masses. And he said this group typically sees what happens, and he, he, this group tries to wake up the people who are in the mass formation, tries to show them like it's absurd what you do. And Gustave Le Bon describes that these people usually won't succeed in waking up the masses because that's almost impossible. But, he said, that doesn't mean that their speech has no effect. Because if these people continue to speak out, they will constantly disturb the mass formation and prevent that it goes to this ultimate stage in which the people in the masses start to commit atrocities. And uh, that's why it is so important to continue to speak out, just because the mass formation in that case probably won't go to the last and ultimate stage. 
Uh, and in this way, so you constantly disturb this phenomenon of hypnosis or mass formation. And also for other reasons, it's extremely important to continue to speak out. Because if you read the experiences of people such as Viktor Frankl or uh, Primo Levi, uh, Solzhenitsyn, who have been in the concentration camps, they all said that the people who, most people in the concentration camps, uh, dehumanized. They became, they be, started to behave in a beast-like manner, stole each other's food, crushed each other's skulls to steal each other's clothes at night, and so on. Uh, but several of these people report that there was always a small minority of the people there, of the prisoners, who chose the other direction and who tried to represent a little bit of light in this pool of darkness. And these people tried to stick, to stick to the ethical principles of humanity. And the first ethical principle, I believe, is always to continue to speak out as a human being. You have the ethical duty to articulate the words that emerge in ourselves and that seem honest and sincere words. Also, when it's not without danger to do so. And I believe that. Uh, and then the, so these, these guys are referred to, uh, Solzhenitsyn, Viktor Frankl, Primo Levi, all noticed that the people who chose to remain loyal to their ethical principles, that they went through a very fast process of mental evolution and psychological evolution, even spiritual evolution. They became more and more aware of the ethical principles of humanity. They become more and more in touch with uh, the essence of life, the essence of our existence as a human being. And that's exactly, I think, the deeper meaning and purpose of a crisis like this one. If we make the right choice, we will at the same time prevent the masses of becoming radically destructive and cruel towards the people who do not go along with, with them. And at the same time, because we continue to speak out, we will go through this faster process of mental, psychological, spiritual evolution, which will propel us, push us further and further in a direction that we really needed to go, but that we will never go in if there was not this large group that put so much pressure on us. So what's happened, if you look at things in this way, you clearly see that what happens now is a process of um, something new being born. There is a large group, who puts a, lot of, a large organism that puts a lot of pressure on a small organism, which is pushed through on a path, where it, on, through a small tunnel, which it would not go through, if it were not of the pressure that is um, put on us. So I, I believe that we have all reasons for intellectual, tactical, but definitely also ethical reasons to continue to speak out. So and what, what happened then is the following. If masses continue to exist, they always exhaust themselves. They are always intrinsically self-destructive. So we don't have to beat the masses. We don't have to overcome the masses. No, the masses will destroy themselves. But we have to make sure that they exhaust themselves before they destroy us. And that's why we need to continue to speak out. If you continue to speak out, the destruction towards the people who do not go along with them will not manifest. And they will exhaust themselves, become weaker and weaker and weaker. And at the same time, the small group will become stronger and stronger and stronger. And at a certain moment, it will deliver the principles for a new living together which is the real, when you're living together as human beings. That's why we should focus on. We shouldn't care too much uh, about what exactly will happen in the nearby future. Nobody can predict. Many things will happen. But we better focus on this one most important thing, namely to stay loyal to the ethical principles of humanity, to reinvent these principles, these universal and eternal principles, Rearticulate them, get in touch with them again, and then we will understand that these ethical principles are the backbone of the human being. If you read Solzhenitsyn, for instance, his wonderful book for which he won the Nobel Prize, the Gulag Archipelago, uh, he says that these prisoners, several of these prisoners, that in these completely in this in this um, uh, infernal uh, situation that uh, the Gulags were, uh, that the people who he refers to, this one guy in particular, uh, Ivanovich Grigoriev, I think was his name, 
who uh, really had a spotless human mind, he said, and who refused uh, to, uh, to, uh, to act in an inhumane way. Uh, if other people stole his clothes or, her, or, or his food, he refused to, to, to do the same himself. If the prisoners commanded him to do something he considered unethical, he just refused to, uh, to uh, act in an unethical way himself, no matter what the, what the consequences were. And Solzhenitsyn said, I've seen that this guy entered the gulags in a sickly state. He was a weak person, but that he became stronger and stronger and stronger. And that eventually he survived the gulags for 15 years while most people died in a few weeks to a few months. Mm -hmm. So that's what um, we can expect of ethical principles. We have to reinvent it. We all lost touch to a large extent, I think, with the importance of ethical principles. And that's uh, one major challenge for the group who refuses to, to, uh, to conform, to uh, rediscover these ethical principles. And to, what, what, to what do you think, sorry, why do you think there's, as you said before, there's, there's always typically a group of people that refuse to enter the mass formation. Uh, what, why do you think some people do that? Is it just people that are more skeptical, people that are more, I'm trying to think of the right term, um, I wouldn't say disobedient. I guess disobedient would work. You know, people that just question things, are they are those the type of people that are more likely to stay out of the mass formation? Why is it that some people just don't get involved in that? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Probably because they, they, uh, they yeah, this question has been, has been asked time and time again throughout the last two centuries. Everyone who studied mass formation has noticed that there is a group that doesn't fall prey to it, but uh, this group is extremely diverse. It is as if you cannot define this group. It is an extremely diverse group, heterogeneous group of people who just for one reason or, or another refuse to buy into a narrative that according to them is a, is a deceitful and untrue. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, nobody knows actually. Yeah. It's it interesting. Have something to do with a certain, a certain aversion for the ideology from which the mass formation starts. In this case, the transhumanist ideology or the technocratic ideology. So that can be one of the reasons. But in the end, nobody really knows. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting because there's a lot of people that that I know personally that haven't bought into the mass in the past. You know, over the past two years, and. You know, it's the same people that will always question everything. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. They'll, they'll question it and they always want to know more. Um, whereas the people that I know, I've, I've got family that that have, have bought into the propaganda over the past two years and they believe in it, they follow that. And, you know, I see a pattern. It's hard to explain what that pattern is, but I see the pattern between people. I, I could almost tell you right now that if something was to happen, who would buy into the next narrative? I could tell you who they would be. And I could also tell you who would be the ones that would stay out of that. Um, I just, I, I know it's mm. always the same sort of people that do, uh, but it's very interesting as to, to why some people, is, is there any characteristics that are the same? Like, is it, you know, people that are more likely to, I don't know, uh, I don't, there's a million examples I could give. Is, is there characteristics that are similar in those people? I don't dare to say it. I don't know. Mm. You know, you feel this certain connection with many people who don't, uh, who, who didn't participate in the mass formation. I feel this connection, and I think many of these people are really on a personal quest or on a personal. They feel that um, we are going through an extremely important process, and um, yeah. But they are also very diverse. Yes. Yeah, a lot of a lot of I've, I've noticed that a lot of people that are that are spiritual, whether it be just you know their own personal spirituality, whether it be religion, but I know it's a lot of people that are really spiritual and 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 sort of believe in a higher being, a higher power, mm. that are more likely, from what I can see anyway, from what I'm observing, that are more likely to stay out of it and question it. 
Um, yes, I think so too. I think so too. That that I, I think that's that might be one characteristic that many of these people share. That they they feel that uh, that they are they are not materialist mechanist thinkers. They yeah. they they see the world as life as something with meaning. Something they feel that they have a mission here. They feel that they have to that 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 we cannot be reduced to uh, uh, biological uh, or biochemical processes. That there is much more than that. I, I do believe that this might be one characteristic that is a uh, that many people share uh, who do not participate in a mass formation. That's possible. Not all of them, but many. Yes. Now, also, so around the world, I don't know if you know, it was it's been quite bad here in Australia. It's been very bad. Uh, probably right up there with one of the worst countries in the world in terms of the response, the government response to coronavirus. It's been, you know, we've had hospitals that were refusing, you know, uh, fathers weren't allowed into the room with their wives uh, when they're giving birth to the baby uh, unless they were vaccinated. Uh, there's been so many stories like that where it's it's just, it's it's horrible uh, what they've done. Um, I, I myself, I lost I lost my job. Uh, last year because I uh, wouldn't get vaccinated. Uh, so it's been horrible. But what I've noticed is that not just in Australia now, but around the world, I think the government is starting to pull back on, on the, cause it's been relentless pressure for two years. You know, it doesn't matter what channel you watch, what radio station you listen to, whenever you go on Facebook or Twitter, just relentless messaging about, the dangers, you know, it's just been, it's been so much. And now that's starting to be wound back a bit. And has that been wound back due to the fact that the mass formation is dying out or is the mass formation dying out because the measures have been pulled back? Do, do, do you think they, they, they're reactive, but the, the government react to the overall mentality of the population? They do, they do, they do react, I believe. Uh, you know what you just described is just one of the elementary principles of propaganda. If you use propaganda, you should you should use all channels. Propaganda has always been total, said Jacques Elou. You have to use all channels. You have to use radio, television, internet, um, advertising on the streets, uh, uh, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, newspapers, journals, articles, uh, academic journals, and so on. You have to use all channels. Total, total, total. Propaganda can only work, uh, Jacques Rousse said, if it's total, if, if it's everywhere. Um, you know, you have to distinguish, of course, between the narrative and the ideology. Uh, what, what the, the underlying ideology here, what actually happens, according to me, is that uh, democracy, democracy is replaced by technocracy, a kind of technocratic totalitarianism. And uh, different narratives are used to realize this. The climate narrative, the, 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 the uh, corona narrative, the, and so on, the, terror, the, 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 the terrorism narrative, is the, all these narratives uh, sometimes they probably refer to, to a danger that is more or less real, uh, but doesn't matter. Uh, these narratives, in the end, are used to just convince the population that we need to change our society, that we need to reshape our society into a kind of a technologically controlled society um, in which uh, everyone will have a digital ID and will be subjected to a social credit system and so on and so on. So that's the ideology. And it might be the case that at the moment, uh, uh, some of the, uh, the global institutions, such as the WEF and, uh, and the WHO and so on, believe that, it's, that the corona narrative uh, is not very uh, appropriate anymore to, to push the ideology even further. But, and that maybe other narratives can be used in a more efficient way now, uh, according to them. So that's possible, I don't know. Uh, it will probably be a little bit of the two uh, on the one hand. Um, uh, yeah, they might see that the population starts to uh, become insensitive to this corona narrative, uh, and 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 on the other hand, yeah, I don't you know. can see it. You can but, see you can see what they're doing. You can see that they're shifting the narrative from coronavirus to climate, the climate narrative. 
which you're really seeing mm-hmm. now. And and that's what I've noticed as well with the climate narrative is that I'll speak to people and they'll start talking to me about, you know, we need to do more. We need to reduce our emissions, our CO2 emissions and, and all of this. And when you actually ask them why, why do we have to do that? Like, what are you saying? They, they don't even know. <laughs> they don't know why we have to reduce emissions. They don't know why we're in a climate emergency. They have no idea why. They're just repeating it. But yet they're so passionate about it. that They're so passionate where if they see you do something that they don't like, they will criticize you, but they themselves don't have the facts as to, okay, well, for example, why is excessive CO2 in the atmosphere bad? Show me the science. Like, what are you talking about? They don't have the answer, but yet they're so passionate about the issue, which is very bizarre to me. Is that part of mm-hmm. the mass formation? It's at least part of the propaganda. Mm. Um, you know, I think the only real mass formation that we've seen in our society was the, the mass formation uh, of the corona crisis. For the rest, there was massification. There was massification, what Jacques Leu calls massification, which were like preliminary states of mass formation. But the only real mass formation was during the corona crisis, because only in the corona crisis, you could see that suddenly uh, there were two new groups, a group of people who bought into the narrative and a group of people who refused to buy into the narrative. And these, the, the dividing line between these two groups run straight through every pre-existing group, families, friendships, uh, companies, uh, political parties, and so on, they were all split in two by this dividing line between the two news group, new groups. The only thing that mattered suddenly was what, you, was what your opinion was about the virus. Did you believe in the narrative or not? And the rest didn't matter anymore. So that's the, 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 the mark of a fully-fledged scale uh, a phenomenon of mass formation. But for the rest, of course, now we see... Um, okay, can you repeat your last question? Because if I... Yeah, just with with the climate uh, the climate narrative. Now you're saying that people are extremely passionate. Well, I'm saying that people are very opinionated about it. But yet, when you ask them, you know, a simple question like, for example, why is excessive CO2 in the atmosphere a problem? They can't yes. answer very basic questions. It's well, like they don't they don't know. Yes, yes, of course, of course. Yes, yes, it doesn't matter. That's that's exactly the same as what we said about the coronavirus, it doesn't matter whether the narrative is correct or, 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 or accurate or not. What matters is that this narrative leads to a new social connectedness, a new social bond. That there is this enthusiastic, heroic, collective battle with, a, with an object of anxiety. It can be climate change, it can be the virus, or it can be oh, no matter what. Uh, but, but of course, that's, that's a sign of mass formation, yes. yes. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter what you show them. You, you could say, look, I've used the example many times that especially when they start speaking about, you know, we need to do more to, to, you know, for the climate and, and I'll say to them, but listen, the people that are telling us to do those things, for example, you know, you have Klaus Schwab of the world economic forum, Bill Gates, you know, the typical characters that are behind most of what happens, you see that they're still flying around in their private jets. So I say to them, well, why, why should you have to change your life? If these people that are telling you to do it, they're not doing anything about it. In fact, they're much worse than what you are. You you don't fly around in a private jet, so you know don't don't you see the hypocrisy in what they're telling you to do? But they don't. I don't know whether they don't see it or they just don't care. But you know, it, it doesn't bother them. No, it doesn't bother them. That's true. Yes, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's insanity. It's a, on the one hand, on the one hand, it's blindness, which really exists. And on the other hand, at the same time, they also don't care because, as I said, the real reasons are situated at the emotional, the affective level, all these interpersonal and emotional advantages of the mass formation. That's what it is all about. Uh, and that's, that makes them blind as well. They probably really don't see it. Um, but at the same time, they also don't want to see it. Definitely not. Once someone is in a mass formation, he definitely doesn't want to wake up. Of course not, because the mass formation... Uh, for, uh, took away his experiences of loneliness. It it gave an object to, 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 to his anxiety. It gave him an object 
to direct his frustration and aggression on. So the least, the last thing a person in mass formation wants is, is to wake up. And the leaders of a mass also don't want the masses to wake up because they know that if the masses wake up, uh, they will attack their leaders. That always happens because as soon as the masses wake up, they start to see what happened. They start to see the destruction that happened. They start to see what they lost. And then they look for someone who they can uh, keep responsible. And that's always the usually the leader. So you see, once the mass formation started, people, both the leaders and the masses themselves, just simply don't want to wake up. Yeah, now, on, on to that point very quickly about where you said that about protecting, you know, almost the, 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 the narrative, I guess. Do you think that, because we've seen now that, you know, if someone says something that goes against that narrative, we've seen it many times with world-leading doctors. Dr. Malone had his Twitter account shut down. There's many examples of what's happened. Is that a deliberate action? in order for them to protect the mass formation, the leaders to protect the mass formation, is what we're seeing now with this this censorship that's really... Yeah. Censorship is just uh, one uh, aspect of propaganda, of propaganda. Everyone knows that propaganda can only be effective as if, uh, if, the, if the, the dissonant voices uh, cannot be heard. Uh, so censorship is, is, is one part of propaganda. You shouldn't you shouldn't under, uh, underestimate uh, uh, the, the 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 huge propaganda machinery that was developed throughout the last 130 years. It started somewhere in 1900. Even a little bit, you could even say it started after the French Revolution. But in the beginning, it was propaganda was happened only on a small scale, very small scale. But from the first World War World War onwards. Uh, huge propaganda machinery machinery has been uh, has been uh, uh, developed in the Western world, and uh, and um, uh, one of the basic principles of propaganda is that you always should try to silence uh, dissonant voices. So censorship is is part of that propaganda strategy, of course. Uh, hmm. Right now, I'm aware that you have uh, to you have to go now. We're we're almost out of time, but before we go, um, so your book, um. The title of your book and also where can the listeners get it if they want to read it yeah you can buy my book uh through several links uh, it's called the psychology of totalitarianism you can find it on amazon but i know many people prefer to buy it uh, uh somewhere else um you can buy it at the website of chelsea green my publisher as well uh, and you can buy it on several online shops uh yeah and also on in, in bookshops yeah uh, okay well probably if you google the, the title uh the the psychology of totalitarianism then you it won't be difficult to find it okay i'll, I'll try and attach a few links to the description of this podcast yeah. on her, but professor desmet has been a pleasure thank you very much thank you very much chris thank you for inviting me Thank you. Keep up the good work. It's very important that we have voices like yours speaking out. So thank you very much.